In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In 2009, I was... Privilege of getting to write and direct a short film that some of you may have seen. And as I was preparing to actually produce this, it was more than more than a piece of art. It felt like an event. Um, as I was preparing, I held auditions in New York City for the different roles that were in the play because I knew um, screenplay. I knew that um, from my own experience as an actor, there were many, many, many actors in New York who would be willing to work without pay on this project just so that they could write in on their resume a little line saying that they had done it. So I held auditions, and as I held auditions, particularly for the roles of the male disciples, I asked them what disciple they would prefer to play if they knew. And you'd be surprised, um, most of them were not churched and had no Christian background or experience, but somehow they almost all knew about Thomas and almost every single one of them wanted to play Thomas over any of the other disciples. Common to relate to Thomas, isn't it? Because honestly, every one of us has struggled with doubt at some point in our lives. Thomas often gets dubbed Doubting Thomas, but it might be um, that upon examining scripture, we would be able to give him a different title. We might be able to call him Pessimistic Thomas, or Jaded Thomas, Self-Reliant Thomas, um, or even Excluded Thomas. And when we first hear about him in John's gospel, when we first see him, he actually gets a speaking role early on, and he gets a speaking role in John, which he doesn't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, he appears in chapter 11. He starts to speak in chapter 11. And leading up to chapter 11 in John's gospel, what we see is that Jesus has been spending time in the north, in Galilee, where he's from. And as he goes to the south um, to worship in the temple for various festivals in Jerusalem, he is so popular that the people want to make him their king. And this is a dangerous thing because the religious leaders are opposed to him. And so John repeatedly shows Jesus encountering trouble when he goes to Jerusalem. He's almost arrested in chapter 7 and then very nearly stoned, first in chapter 8 and then again in chapter 10. It is by God's grace that he miraculously escapes. It was not his time to die. And so when we get to chapter 11, the disciples are again with Jesus in the north in Galilee and they find out that Jesus' dear friend Lazarus is sick. And the disciples are trying to keep him from going to Judea down near Jerusalem because they are afraid that Jesus will not escape this time and that he will in fact die. And then of course they're afraid that they too will die with him. And Thomas, fully aware of the dangers of returning, he speaks up and he says pessimistically, let us go too that we may die with him. He's bold 
and a little pessimistic, more than a little pessimistic. He's convinced that he won't return if he goes down to Judea with Jesus, but he's still committed to going. He is loyal. And so because of this pessimism, I sort of see him a little bit like Eeyore in the old Winnie the Pooh books that were made into movies. If you have children, I guarantee you, you've watched them, or if you have grandchildren, you've watched them. And the voice that's given to Eeyore, I often associate that with Thomas. Let's go also, that we may die with him. (laughs) He's glum, a little bit pessimistic. Is it possible, then, that Thomas's doubts in chapter 20 of John about the resurrection stem not from disbelief about the possibility of the supernatural, but from his pessimism? Is it possible that he doesn't dare to hope that Jesus, his teacher and Lord, who had died such a terrible death, he cannot believe that he could possibly rise from the dead because perhaps it's just too good to be true. Well, all of the other disciples had been together and present on the evening of Jesus' resurrection, that third day from when he was crucified. That morning, Easter morning, as we heard last week, the women had come to the male disciples with the strange report of angels and an empty tomb. James, or John and Peter had raced to the tomb to see if it was true, and they had come back. Um, and then we begin to hear of the appearances that not only was the tomb empty, but that the risen Lord Jesus was appearing to disciples one by one, to Mary Magdalene, calling her name, to Peter, we don't know where or when or how, to Clopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. And then in our passage for today, we see Jesus miraculously appearing that night, that Easter night, in the upper room, Ten of the apostles were there, cloistered away, afraid, trembling. And there Jesus appears even though the doors are locked. They see him and they believe. And I feel bad for Thomas. Why wasn't he there? Where was he? We don't know. But he was left out from this major moment in the life of the church. When his friends tell him what had happened, Thomas swears emphatically that he will never believe unless he puts his finger in the nail hole, unless he puts his hand in Jesus' side. It would have been an awkward week for Thomas. He was left out, confused and frightened, wanting probably to think and feel differently but helpless to do so without outside intervention. It was all too good to be true. In the final volume of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, that dear beloved fantasy series that probably every kid has read, or maybe just that I've read many times, the um, magical place of Narnia, which is the country in those books, begins to pass away, and the new Narnia, like heaven, appears on earth. All of the heroes of the whole series of books find their way into this new Narnia. 
And as a result of the last battle, there's also a group of dwarves. Did I tell you it's fantastical? Yes, dwarves. There's a group of dwarves, and in that last battle, they had refused to fight on either side because they couldn't trust them. They stood in the middle and they took shots at either side. They fired arrows either way, and they said, the dwarves are for the dwarves. And so when they get into the new Narnia, they cannot see it. They can't experience it with their own senses. And the heroes try to help them see it somehow, but they only lash out against them. And then Aslan, the god figure, gives them special gifts to try to convince them where they are. The dwarves fight over these gifts, and then they finally give up. Lewis then writes, When at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said... Well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Asland explains to the others, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Is it possible that Thomas's doubts about the resurrection are more than just a simple negativity, more than just stubborn resistance, more too even perhaps than pessimism? After all, a happily ever after seems impossible when you've been burned by the happily ever afters that never happened. And so even as a Christian, if you believe in the creeds with all your heart and mind, you can say them without a shadow of a doubt, even if you believe in miracles and the impossible. You might not yet still believe that God can change you. You might not believe that God can forgive you. You might not believe that God can heal your broken marriage or that he can cause some eternal good to come out of the temporal suffering that you are now experiencing. You might not believe that God hears your unanswered prayers. For Thomas, it was all too good to be true. And for us, too, it can seem all too good to be true. We might, like Thomas, might decide that we will never believe unless, unless we see, unless we place our fingers into the mark of the nails, unless we were miraculously able to put our hands into the spear wound in Jesus' side. Thomas demands faith by touch as if he is in control of whether or not he will believe he would like to dictate the conditions under which he will decide whether or not he will believe. Thomas treats faith as if it were a work, as if it were something that he could drum up within himself. But faith, in fact, is a gift from God. A grace, if you will, given to us. In the preface of his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther wrote that faith is a divine work in us. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. 
Thomas's faith is given to him graciously by Jesus. God intervenes from outside of him. And one week later, after the risen Jesus first appeared in that upper room, he comes back and he comes back just for Thomas. Jesus demonstrates that he has miraculously heard Thomas's doubt and his disbelief and his objections. But Jesus is not dis- deterred and Jesus is not dismayed. In fact, Jesus graciously offers up his crucified and risen body to be crudely examined by the disciple that he loves. And Thomas A sheep from the flock of the good shepherd needs, in fact, only to hear his voice. He needs only to see those wounds that were inflicted on his behalf. And Thomas cries out now with great faith, my Lord and my God. What had once seemed impossible, too good to be true, is now without question for Thomas. Thomas is now at peace. This peace, three times Jesus said, peace be with you. And the peace that is with the disciples is a peace that comes directly from beholding the wounds of Jesus. During my days as a Shakespearean actor, I knew that if anyone was going to actually understand what I was saying on stage, I had to really study. And so I took great delight in studying, reading all the footnotes in my great big complete works of Shakespeare. And one of the footnotes for one of the words that I didn't understand was so interesting to me because the word was an epithet um, said in um, exclamation in Shakespearean days. And the word is zounds. It's an epithet that is conflated from three words. By God's wounds. And it stuck with me like a prayer. Zounds. Like shorthand between me and God. To reference what Isaiah prophesied. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Many churches have red doors, and those red doors signify the blood of Christ, because it is by his wounds that we enter into the family of God. It is by his wounds that we enter into the church. By his wounds, these babies that were baptized today will be brought into God's kingdom. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are forgiven. By his wounds, we have life eternal and abundant. By his wounds, we miraculously enter into faith, even when it seems impossible or too good to be true. By his wounds, we find peace. Because through Christ, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It seems too good to be true, but God's prerogative is to redefine truth. Nothing is impossible with him, not even restoring broken sinners or sparking faith in those who cannot believe. 
And so if you are struggling to believe this morning about anything, about God's goodness, about his love and mercy towards you, know that Jesus knows your doubts and he is not deterred. He desires to bring what only he can bring, peace through reconciliation with God and peace of mind in believing. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Reveal yourself to us in some way. Break through and intervene from outside of us as you do delight to do. Give to us, as you gave to Thomas, the gift of faith and an unshakable confidence in your grace. By your wounds, bring to us that peace that passes all understanding. Amen.